Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 2, Chapter 10, Section 11. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 11. Abraham alone ought to be to us equal to tens of thousands if we consider his faith, which is set before us as the best model of believing, to whose race also we must be held to belong, in order that we may be the children of God. What could be more absurd than that Abraham should be the father of all the faithful, and not even occupy the meanest corner among them? He cannot be denied a place in the list, nay, he cannot be denied one of the most honorable places in it, without the destruction of the whole church. Now, as regards his experience in life, the moment he is called by the command of God, he is torn away from friends, parents, and country, objects in which the chief happiness of life is deemed to consist, as if it had been the fixed purpose of the Lord to deprive him of all the sources of enjoyment. No sooner does he enter the land in which he was ordered to dwell than he is driven from it by famine. In the country to which he retires to obtain relief, he is obliged, for his personal safety, to expose his wife to prostitution. This must have been more bitter than many deaths. After returning to the land of his habitation, he is again expelled by famine. What is the happiness of inhabiting a land where you must so often suffer from hunger, nay, perish from famine, unless you flee from it? Then again, with Abimelech, he is reduced to the same necessity of saving his head by the loss of his wife. Genesis 12, verse 12. While he wanders up and down uncertain for many years, he is compelled, by the constant quarreling of servants, to part with his nephew, who was to him as a son. This departure must doubtless have cost him a pang, something like the cutting off of a limb. Shortly after, he learns that his nephew is carried off captive by the enemy. Wherever he goes, he meets with savage-hearted neighbors, who will not even allow him to drink of the wells which he has dug with great labor. For he would not have purchased the use from the king of Gerar if he had not been previously prohibited. After he had reached the verge of life, he sees himself childless, the bitterest and most unpleasant feeling to old age, until beyond expectation Ishmael is born, and yet he pays dearly for his birth and the reproaches of Sarah, as if he was the cause of domestic disturbance by encouraging the contumacy of a female slave. At length Isaac is born. But in return, the firstborn Ishmael is displaced, and almost hostily driven forth and abandoned. Isaac remains alone, and the good man, now worn out with age, has his heart upon him when shortly after he is ordered to offer him up in sacrifice. What can the human mind conceive more dreadful than for the father to be the murderer of his son? 
had he been carried off by disease? Who would not have thought the old man much to be pitied in having a son given to him in mockery and in having his grief for being childless doubled to him? Had he been slain by some stranger, this would indeed have been much worse than natural death. But all these calamities are little compared with the murder of him by his father's hand. Thus, in fine, during the whole course of his life, he was harassed and tossed in such a way that any one desirous to give a picture of a calamitous life could not find one more appropriate. Let it not be said that he was not so very distressed, because he at length escaped from all these tempests. He is not said to lead a happy life who, after infinite difficulties during a long period, at last laboriously works out his escape, but he who calmly enjoys present blessings without any alloy of suffering. Section 12. Isaac is less afflicted, but he enjoys very few of the sweets of life. He also meets with those vexations which do not permit a man to be happy on the earth. Famine drives him from the land of Canaan. His wife is torn from his bosom. His neighbors are ever and anon annoying and vexing him in all kinds of ways, so that he is even obliged to fight for water. At home he suffers great annoyance from his daughters-in-law. He is stung by the dissension of his sons, and has no other cure for this great evil than to send the son whom he had blessed into exile. Genesis 26 and 27. Jacob again is nothing but a striking example of the greatest wretchedness. His boyhood is passed most uncomfortably at home amidst the threats and alarms of his elder brother, and to these he is at length forced to give way. Genesis 27 and 28. A fugitive from his parents and his native soil, in addition to the hardships of exile, the treatment he receives from his uncle Laban is in no respect milder and more humane. Genesis 29. As if it had been little to spend seven years of hard and rigorous servitude, he is cheated in the matter of a wife. For the sake of another wife, he must undergo a new servitude, during which, as he himself complains, the heat of the sun scorches him by day, while in frost and cold he spends the sleepless night. Genesis 31, verses 40 and 41. For twenty years he spends this bitter life, and daily suffers new injuries from his father-in-law. Nor is he quiet at home, which he sees disturbed and almost broken up by the hatreds, quarrels, and jealousies of his wives. When he is ordered to return to his native land, he is obliged to take this departure in a manner resembling an ignominious flight. Even then he is unable to escape the injustice of his father-in-law. But in the midst of his journey is assailed by him with contumely and reproach. Genesis 31, verse 20. By and by much greater difficulty befalls him, Genesis 32 and 33, for as he approaches his brother, he has as many forms of death in prospect as a cruel foal could invent. Hence, while waiting for his arrival, he is distracted and excruciated by direful terrors, and when he comes into his sight, he falls at his feet like one half dead, until he perceives him to be more placable than he had ventured to hope. Moreover, when he first enters the land, he is bereaved of Rachel, his only beloved wife. Afterwards, he hears that the son whom she had borne him, and whom he loved more than all his other children, is devoured by a wild beast. Genesis 37, verse 33. How deep the sorrow caused by his death he himself evinces when, after long tears, he obstinately refuses to be comforted, declaring that he will go down to the grave to his son mourning. 
In the meantime, what vexation, anxiety, and grief must he have received from the carrying off and dishonor of his daughter, and the cruel revenge of his sons, which not only brought him into bad odor with all the inhabitants of the country, but exposed him to the greatest danger of extermination. Genesis 34 then follows the horrid wickedness of Reuben his firstborn, wickedness than which none could be committed more grievous. Genesis 36, verse 22. The dishonor of a wife being one of the greatest of calamities, what must be said when the atrocity is perpetuated by a son? Some time after, the family is again polluted with incest. Genesis 38, verse 18. All these disgraces might have crushed a mind otherwise the most firm and unbroken by misfortune. Towards the end of his life, when he seeks relief for himself and his family from famine, he is struck by the announcement of a new misfortune that one of his sons is detained in prison, and that to recover him he must entrust to others his dearly beloved Benjamin. Genesis 42 and 43 who can think that in such a series of misfortunes one moment was given him in which he could breathe secure? Accordingly, his own best witness, he declares to Pharaoh, quote, Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, unquote. Genesis 47, verse 9. In declaring that he had spent his life in constant wretchedness, he denies that he had experienced the prosperity which had been promised him by the Lord. Jacob, therefore, either formed a malignant and ungrateful estimate of the Lord's favor, or he truly declared that he had lived miserable on the earth. If so, it follows that his hope could not have been fixed on earthly objects. Section 13. If these holy patriarchs expected a happy life from the hand of God, and it is indubitable that they did, they viewed and contemplated a different happiness from that of a terrestrial life. This is admirably shown by an apostle. Quote, by faith, he... Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Unquote. Quote, These all died in faith, not having received promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he had prepared for them a city. Unquote. Hebrews 11, verses 9, 10, and 13 through 16. They have been duller than blocks, and so pertinaciously pursuing promises, no hope of which appeared upon the earth, if they had not expected their completion elsewhere. The thing which the apostle specially urges, and not without reason, is that they call this world a pilgrimage, as Moses also relates. Genesis 47, verse 9. If they were pilgrims and strangers in the land of Canaan, where is the promise of the Lord which appointed them heirs of it? It is clear, therefore, that the promise of possession which they had received looked farther. Hence, they did not acquire a footbreadth in the land of Canaan except for sepulture, thus testifying that they hoped not to receive the benefit of the promise till after death. And this is the reason why Jacob set so much value on being buried there, that he took Joseph bound by oath to see it done, and why Joseph wished that his bones should some ages later, long after they had moldered into dust, be carried thither. Genesis 47, verses 29 and 30, and chapter 50, verse 25.
Section 14. In short, it is manifest that in the whole course of their lives they had an eye to future blessedness. Why should Jacob have aspired so earnestly to primogeniture and intrigued for it at so much risk if it were to bring him only exile and destitution and no good at all unless he looked some higher blessing? And that this was his feeling he declared in one of the last sentences he uttered, quote, I have waited for thy salvation, O God, unquote. Genesis 49, verse 18. What salvation could he have waited for when he felt himself breathing his last, if he did not see in death the beginning of a new life? And why talk of saints and the children of God, when even one who otherwise strove to resist the truth was not devoid of some similar impression? For what did Balaam mean when he said, quote, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his? Unquote. Numbers 23, verse 10, unless he felt convinced of what David afterward declares, quote, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Unquote. Psalm 116, verse 15, and 34, verse 12. If death were the goal and ultimate limit, no distinction could be observed between the righteous and the wicked. The true distinction is the different lot which awaits them after death. Section 15. We have not yet come farther down than the books of Moses, whose only office, according to our opponents, was to induce the people to worship God by setting before them the fertility of the land in its general abundance. And yet to everyone who does not voluntarily shun the light, there is clear evidence of a spiritual covenant. But if we come down to the prophets, the kingdom of Christ and eternal life are there exhibited in the fullest splendor. First, David, as earlier in time, in accordance with the order of the divine procedure, spoke of heavenly mysteries more obscurely than they. And yet, with what clearness and certainty does he point to it in all he says? The value he put upon his earthly habitation is attested by these words, quote, I am a stranger with thee, and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Verily every man at his best estate is altogether vanity. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Unquote. Psalm 39, verses 12, and 5, and 6, and 7. He who confesses that there is nothing solid or stable on the earth, and yet firmly retains his hope in God, undoubtedly contemplates a happiness reserved for him elsewhere. To this contemplation he is wont to invite believers whenever he would have them to be truly comforted. For in another passage, after speaking of human life as a fleeting and evanescent show, he adds, quote, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. Unquote. Psalm 103, verse 17. To this there is a corresponding passage in another psalm, quote, Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Unquote. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28. If notwithstanding of the destruction of the heavens and the earth, the godly cease not to be established before God, it follows that their salvation is connected with his eternity. But this hope could have no existence if it did not lean upon the promise as expounded by Isaiah, quote, The heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Unquote. Isaiah 
51, verse 6. Perpetuity is here attributed to righteousness and salvation, not as they reside in God, but as they are experienced by men. Section 16. Nor can those things which are everywhere said as to the prosperous success of believers be understood in any other sense than as referring to the manifestation of celestial glory. Of this nature are the following passages, quote, He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Unquote. Quote, his righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Unquote. Quote, Surely the righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence. Unquote. Quote, the righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Unquote. Quote, the Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants. Unquote. Psalm 97 verses 10 and 11, 112 verses 9 and 10, 140 verse 13, and 112 verse 6, and 34 verse 22. But the Lord often leaves his servants not only to be annoyed by the violence of the wicked, but to be lacerated and destroyed allows the good to languish in obscurity and squalid poverty, while the ungodly shine forth, as it were, among the stars, and even by withdrawing the light of his countenance does not leave them lasting joy. Wherefore David by no means disguises the fact that if believers fix their eyes on the present condition of the world, they will be grievously tempted to believe that, with God, integrity has neither favor nor reward. So much does impiety prosper and flourish, while the godly are oppressed with ignominy, poverty, contempt, and every kind of cross. The psalmist says, quote, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Unquote. At length, after a statement of the case, he concludes, quote, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Unquote. Psalm 73, verses 2, 3, 16, and 17. Section 17. Therefore, even from this confession of David, let us learn that the Holy Fathers under the Old Testament were not ignorant that in this world God seldom or never gives His servants the fulfillment of what is promised them, and therefore has directed their minds to His sanctuary, where the blessings not exhibited in the present shadowy life are treasured up for them. This sanctuary was the final judgment of God, which as they could not at all discern it by the eye, they were contented to apprehend by faith. Inspired with this confidence, they doubted not that whatever might happen in the world, a time would at length arrive when the divine promises would be fulfilled. This is attested by such expressions as these, quote, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Unquote. Psalm 17, verse 15. Quote, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Unquote. Psalm 52, verse 8. Again, quote, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. Unquote. Psalm 92, verses 12 through 14. He had exclaimed a little before, quote, O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. Unquote. Quote, when the wicked spring is the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. Unquote. 
Where was this splendor and beauty of the righteous, unless when the appearance of this world was changed by the manifestation of the heavenly kingdom? Lifting their eyes to the eternal world, they despised the momentary hardships and calamities of the present life, and confidently broke out into these exclamations, quote, He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved, but thou, O God, shalt bring them down into the pit of destruction. Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, unquote. Psalm 55, verses 22 and 23. Where in this world is there a pit of eternal destruction to swallow up the wicked, of whose happiness it is elsewhere said, quote, They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave, unquote. Job 21, verse 13. Where, on the other hand, is the great stability of the saints, who, as David complains, are not only disturbed, but everywhere utterly bruised and oppressed? It is here. He set before his eyes not merely the unstable vicissitudes of the world, tossed like a troubled sea, but what the Lord is to do when he shall one day sit to fix the eternal constitution of heaven and earth, as he in another place elegantly describes, quote, They that trust in their wealth, and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, unquote. Quote, For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling." Unquote. Psalm 49, verses 6, 7, and 10-14 By this derision of the foolish for resting satisfied with the slippery and fickle pleasures of the world, he shows that the wise must seek for a very different felicity. But he more clearly unfolds the hidden doctrine of the resurrection when he sets up a kingdom to the righteous after the wicked are cast down and destroyed. For what, pray, are we to understand by the, quote, morning, unquote, unless it be the revelation of a new life, commencing when the present comes to an end? Section 18. Hence the consideration which believers employed as a solace for their sufferings, and a remedy for their patience, quote, His anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life, unquote. Psalm 30, verse 5. How did their afflictions, which continued almost throughout the whole course of life, terminate in a moment? Where did they see the long duration of the divine benignity, of which they had only the slightest taste? Had they clung to earth, they could have found nothing of the kind. But looking to heaven, they saw that the period during which the Lord afflicted his saints was but a moment, and that the mercies with which he gathers them are everlasting. On the other hand, they foresaw that for the wicked, who only dreamed of happiness for a day, there was reserved an eternal and never-ending destruction. Hence those expressions, quote, The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot, unquote. Proverbs 10, verse 7, quote, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, unquote. Psalm 116, verse 15. Again, in Samuel, quote, The Lord will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, unquote. 1 Samuel 2, verse 9, showing they knew well that however much the righteous might be tossed about, their latter end was life and peace, that how pleasant soever the delights of the wicked, they gradually lead down to the chambers of death. 
they accordingly designated the death of such persons as the death, quote, of the uncircumcised, unquote, that is, persons cut off from the hope of resurrection. Ezekiel 28, verse 10, and 31, verse 18. Hence David could not imagine a greater curse than this, quote, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous, unquote. Psalm 69, verse 28. Section 19. The most remarkable passage of all is that of Job, quote, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. Unquote. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Those who would make a display of their acuteness pretend that these words are to be understood not of the last resurrection, but of the day when Job expected that God would deal more gently with him. Granting that this is partly meant, we shall, however, compel them, whether they will or not, to admit that Job never could have attained to such fullness of hope if his thoughts had risen no higher than the earth. It must therefore be confessed that he who saw that the Redeemer would be present with him when lying in the grave must have raised his eyes to a future immortality. To those who think only of the present life, death is the extremity of despair, but it could not destroy the hope of Job. Quote, Though he slay me, unquote, said he, quote, yet will I trust in him, unquote. Job 13, verse 15. Let no trifler here burst in with the objection that these are the sayings of a few, and do not by any means prove that there was such a doctrine among the Jews. To this my instant answer is that these few did not in such passages give utterance to some hidden wisdom to which only distinguished individuals were admitted privately and apart from others, but that having been appointed by the Holy Spirit to be the teachers of the people, they openly promulgated the mysteries of God, which all in common behoved to learn as the principles of public religion. When, therefore, we hear that those passages in which the Holy Spirit spoke so distinctly and clearly of the spiritual life were public oracles in the Jewish church, it were intolerably perverse to confine them entirely to a carnal covenant relating merely to the earth and earthly riches. Section 20. When we descend to the later prophets, we have it in our power to expiate freely as in our own field. If, when David, Job, and Samuel were in question, the victory was not difficult, much easier is it here. For the method and economy which God observed in administering the covenant of his mercy was that the nearer the period of its full exhibition approached, the greater the additions which were daily made to the light of revelation. Accordingly, at the beginning, when the first promise of salvation was given to Adam, Genesis 3, verse 15, only a few slender sparks beamed forth. Additions being afterwards made, a greater degree of light began to be displayed, and continued gradually to increase and shine with greater brightness, until at length, all the clouds being dispersed, Christ the Son of Righteousness arose, and with full refulgence illumined all the earth. Malachi 4. In appealing to the prophets, therefore, we can have no fear of any deficiency of proof. But as I see an immense mass of materials which would occupy us much longer than is compatible with the nature of our present work, the subject, indeed, would require a large volume. And as I trust that, by what has already been said, I have paved the way, so that every reader of the very least discernment may proceed without stumbling, I will avoid a prolixity for which at present there is little necessity only reminding my readers to facilitate the entrance by means of the key which was formerly put into their hands. See above, chapter 4, section 3 and 4. 
namely, that whenever the prophets make mention of the happiness of believers, the happiness of which scarcely any vestiges are discernible in the present life, they must have recourse to this distinction, that the better to commend the divine goodness to the people, they used temporal blessings as a kind of lineaments to shadow it forth, and yet gave such a portrait as might lift their minds above the earth. The elements of this world, and all that will perish, and compel them to think of the blessedness of a future and spiritual life. Section 21. One example will suffice. When the Israelites were carried away to Babylon, their dispersion seemed to be the next thing to death, and they could scarcely be dissuaded from thinking that Ezekiel's prophecy of their restoration, Ezekiel 37, verse 4, was a mere fable because it seemed to them the same thing as if he had prophesied that putrid carcasses would be raised to life. The Lord, in order to show that, even in that case, there was nothing to prevent him from making room for his kindness, set before the prophet in vision a field covered with dry bones, to which by the mere power of his word he in one moment restored life and strength. The vision served indeed to correct the unbelief of the Jews at the time, but it also reminded them how much farther the power of the Lord extended than to the bringing back of the people, since by a single nod it could so easily give life to dry, scattered bones. Wherefore the passage may be fitly compared with one in Isaiah, quote, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For, behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall also disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Unquote. Isaiah 26, verses 19-21. through 21. Section 22. It were absurd, however, to interpret all the passages on a similar principle, for there are several which point without any veil to the future immortality which awaits believers in the kingdom of heaven. Some of them we have already quoted, and there are many others, but especially the following two. The one is in Isaiah, quote, As the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass, that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth, and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh." Unquote. Isaiah 66, verses 22-24 through 24. The other passage is in Daniel. Quote, At that shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as there never was, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Unquote. Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. Section 23, improving the two remaining points, viz. that the patriarchs had Christ as the pledge of their covenant, and placed all their hope of blessing in him, as they are clear, and not so much controverted, I will be less particular. Let us then lay it down confidently as a truth which no engines of the devil can destroy, that the Old Testament, our covenant which the Lord made with the people of Israel, was not confined to earthly objects but contained a promise of spiritual and eternal life, the expectation of which behoved to be impressed on the minds of all who truly consented to the covenant. 
Let us put far from us the senseless and pernicious notion that the Lord proposed nothing to the Jews, or that they sought nothing but full supplies of food, carnal delights, abundance of wealth, external influence, and numerous offspring, and all those things which our animal nature deems valuable. For even now the only kingdom of heaven which our Lord Jesus Christ promises to his followers is one in which they may sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Matthew 8 verse 11 And Peter declared of the Jews of his day that they were heirs of gospel grace because they were the sons of the prophets and comprehended in the covenant which the Lord of old made with his people. Acts 3 verse 25 And that this might not be attested by words merely, our Lord also approved it by act. Matthew 27 verse 52 At the moment when he rose again, he deigned to make many of the saints partakers of his resurrection and allowed them to be seen in the city thus giving a sure earnest that everything which he did and suffered in the purchase of eternal salvation belonged to believers under the Old Testament just as much as to us. Indeed, as Peter testifies, they were endued with the same spirit of faith by which we are regenerated to life. Acts 15 verse 8 When we hear that that spirit, which is, as it were, a kind of spark of immortality in us, whence it is called the, quote, earnest, unquote, of our inheritance, Ephesians 1, verse 14, dwelt in like manner in them, how can we presume to deny them the inheritance? Hence, it is the more wonderful how the Sadducees of old fell into such a degree of sottishness as to deny both the resurrection and the substantive existence of spirits, both of which were attested to them by so many striking passages of Scripture. Nor would the stupidity of the whole nation in the present day, in expecting an earthly reign of the Messiah, be less wonderful had not the scriptures foretold this long before as the punishment which they were to suffer for rejecting the gospel. God, by a just judgment, blinding minds which voluntarily invite darkness by rejecting the offered light of heaven. They read and are constantly turning over the pages of Moses, but a veil prevents them from seeing the light which beams forth in his countenance. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. And thus to them he will remain covered and veiled until they are converted to Christ, between whom and Moses they now study as much as in them lies to maintain a separation. Chapter 11. There are 14 sections. Section 1. What then? You will say, is there no difference between the Old and the New Testaments? What is to become of the many passages of Scripture in which they are contrasted as things differing most widely from each other? I readily admit the differences which are pointed out in Scripture, but still hold that they derogate in no respect from their established unity, as will be seen after we have considered them in their order. These differences, so far as I have been able to observe them and can remember, seem to be chiefly four, or, if you choose to add a fifth, I have no objections. I hold, and think I will be able to show, that they all belong to the mode of administration rather than to the substance. In this way, there is nothing in them to prevent the promises of the Old and New Testament from remaining the same, Christ being the foundation of both. The first difference, then, is that though in old time the Lord was pleased to direct the thoughts of his people and raise their minds to the heavenly inheritance, yet that their hope of it might be the better maintained, he held it forth, and in a manner gave a foretaste of it under earthly blessings, whereas the gift of future life, now more clearly and lucidly revealed by the gospel, leads our minds directly to meditate upon it, the inferior mode of exercise formerly employed in regard to the Jews being now laid aside. Those who attend not to the divine purpose in this respect suppose that God's ancient people ascended no higher than the blessings which were promised to the body.
that here the land of Canaan so often named is the special and as it were the only reward of the divine law to its worshippers. They hear that the severest punishment which the Lord announces against the transgressors of the law is expulsion from the possession of that land and dispersion into other countries. They see that this forms almost the sum of the blessings and curses declared by Moses. And from these things they confidently conclude that the Jews were separated from other nations not on their own account but for another reason, viz. that the Christian church might have an emblem in whose outward shape might be seen an evidence of spiritual things. But since the scripture sometimes demonstrates that the earthly blessings thus bestowed were intended by God himself to guide them to a heavenly hope, it shows great unskillfulness, not to say dullness, not to attend to this mode of dispensation. The ground of controversy is this. Our opponents hold that the land of Canaan was considered by the Israelites as supreme and final happiness, and now, since Christ was manifested, typifies to us the heavenly inheritance. Whereas we maintain that in the earthly possession which the Israelites enjoyed, they beheld, as in a mirror, the future inheritance which they believed to be reserved for them in heaven. Section 2. This will better appear from the similitude which Paul uses in Galatians. Galatians 4, verse 1. He compares the Jewish nation to an heir in pupillarity, who, as yet unfit to govern himself, follows the direction of a tutor or guide to whose charge he has been committed. Though this simile refers especially to ceremonies, there is nothing to prevent us from applying it most appropriately here also. The same inheritance was destined to them as to us, but from knowledge they were incapable of entering to it and managing it. They had the same church, though it was still in puerility. The Lord, therefore, kept them under this tutelage, giving them spiritual promises, not clear and simple, but typified by earthly objects. Hence, when he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their posterity, to the hope of immortality, he promised them the land of Canaan for an inheritance, not that it might be the limit of their hopes, but that the view of it might train and confirm them in the hope of that true inheritance, which as yet appeared not and to guard against delusion, they received a better promise, which attested that this earth was not the highest measure of divine kindness. Thus, Abraham is not allowed to keep down his thoughts to the promised land. By a greater promise, his views are carried upward to the Lord. He is thus addressed, quote, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. Unquote. Genesis 15, verse 1. Here we see that the Lord is the final reward promised to Abraham, that he might not seek a fleeting and evanescent reward in the elements of this world, but look to one which was incorruptible. A promise of the land is afterwards added for no other reason than that it might be a symbol of the divine benevolence and a type of the heavenly inheritance as the saints declare their understanding to have been. Thus David rises from temporal blessings to the last and highest of all, quote, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, unquote. Quote, My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God, unquote. Psalm 73, verse 26, and 84, verse 2. Again, quote, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Unquote. Psalm 16, verse 5. Again, quote, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Unquote. Psalm 142, verse 5. Those who can venture to speak thus assuredly declare that their hope rises beyond the world and worldly blessings. This future blessedness, however, the prophets often describe under a type which the Lord had taught them. In this way are to be understood the many passages in Job, Job 18, verse 17, and Isaiah, to the effect that the righteous shall inherit the earth, 
that the wicked shall be driven out of it, that Jerusalem will abound in all kinds of riches, and Sion overflow with every species of abundance. In strict propriety, all these things obviously apply not to the land of our pilgrimage, nor to the earthly Jerusalem, but to the true country, the heavenly city of believers, in which the Lord hath commanded blessing and life forevermore. Psalm 133, verse 3. Section 3. Hence the reason why the saints under the Old Testament set a higher value on this mortal life and its blessings than would now be meet. For though they well knew that in their race they were not to halt at it as the goal, yet, perceiving that the Lord, in accommodation to their feebleness, had there imprinted the lineaments of his favor, it gave them greater delight than it could have done if considered only in itself. For as the Lord, in testifying his good will towards believers by means of present blessings, then exhibited spiritual felicity under types and emblems, so, on the other hand, by temporal punishments, he gave proofs of his judgment against the reprobate. Hence, by earthly objects, the favor of the Lord was displayed as well as his punishment inflicted. The unskillful, not considering this analogy and correspondence, if I may so speak, between rewards and punishments, wonder that there is so much variance in God, that those who in old time were suddenly visited for their faults with severe and dreadful punishments, he now punishes much more rarely and less severely, as if he had laid aside his former anger. And, for this reason, they can scarcely help imagining, like the Manichees, that the God of the Old Testament was different from that of the New. But we shall easily disencumber ourselves of such doubts if we attend to that mode of divine administration to which I have adverted, that God was pleased to indicate and typify both the gift of future and eternal felicity by terrestrial blessings, as well as the dreadful nature of spiritual death by bodily punishments at that time when he delivered his covenant to the Israelites as under a kind of veil. Section 4. Another distinction between the Old and New Testaments is in the types, the former exhibiting only the image of truth, while the reality was absent, the shadow instead of the substance, the latter exhibiting both the full truth and the entire body. Mention is usually made of this whenever the New Testament is contrasted with the Old, but it is nowhere so fully treated as in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapters 7 through 10. The Apostle is there arguing against those who thought that the observances of the Mosaic Law could not be abolished without producing the total ruin of religion. In order to refute this error, he adverts to what the psalmist had foretold concerning the priesthood of Christ, Psalm 110, verse 4. Saying that an eternal priesthood is assigned to him, it is clear that the priesthood in which there was a daily succession of priests is abolished, and he proves that the institution of this new priest must prevail because confirmed by an oath. He afterwards adds that a change of the priest necessarily led to a change of the covenant, and the necessity of this he confirms by the reason that the weakness of the law was such that it could make nothing perfect. He then goes on to show in what this weakness consists, namely, that it had external, carnal observances, which could not render the worshippers perfect in respect of conscience, because its sacrifices of beasts could neither take away sins nor procure true holiness. He therefore concludes that it was a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, and accordingly had no other office than to be an introduction to the better hope which is exhibited in the gospel. Here we may see in what respect the legal is compared with the evangelical covenant, the ministry of Christ with that of Moses. If the comparison referred to the substance of the promises, there would be a great repugnance between the two covenants. But since the nature of the case leads to a different view, we must follow it in order to discover the truth. 
Let us therefore bring forward the covenant which God once ratified as eternal and unending. Its completion, whereby it is fixed and ratified, is Christ. Till such completion takes place, the Lord, by Moses, prescribes ceremonies which are, as it were, formal symbols of confirmation. The point brought under discussion was whether or not the ceremonies ordained in law behoved to give way to Christ. Although these were merely accidents of the covenant, or at least additions and appendages, and as they are commonly called accessories, yet because they were the means of administering it, the name of covenant is applied to them, just as is done in the case of other sacraments. Hence, in general, the Old Testament is the name given to the solemn method of confirming the covenant comprehended under ceremonies and sacrifices. Since there is nothing substantial in it, until we look beyond it, the apostle contends that it behoved to be annulled and become antiquated, Hebrews 7, verse 22, to make room for Christ, the surety and mediator of a better covenant, by whom the eternal sanctification of the elect was once purchased, and the transgressions which remained under the law wiped out. But if you prefer it, take it thus. The covenant of the Lord was old, because veiled by the shadowy and ineffectual observance of ceremonies, and it was therefore temporary, being, as it were, in suspense, until it received a firm and substantial confirmation. Then only did it become new and eternal when it was consecrated and established in the blood of Christ. Hence the Savior, in giving the cup to his disciples in the Last Supper, calls it the cup of the New Testament in his blood, intimating that the covenant of God was truly realized, made new, and eternal when it was sealed with his blood. Section 5. It is now clear in what sense the Apostle said, in Galatians 3, verse 24, and 4, verse 1, that by the tutelage of the law the Jews were conducted to Christ before he was exhibited in the flesh. He confesses that they were sons and heirs of God, though, on account of knowledge, they were placed under the guardianship of a tutor. It was fit, the son of righteousness not yet having risen, that there should neither be so much light of revelation, nor such clear understanding. The Lord dispensed the light of his word, so that they could behold it at a distance, and obscurely. Accordingly, this slender measure of intelligence is designated by Paul by the term childhood, which the Lord was pleased to train by the elements of this world and external observances until Christ should appear. Through him the knowledge of the believers was to be matured. This distinction was noted by our Savior himself when he said that the law and the prophets were until John, that from that time the gospel of the kingdom was preached. Matthew 11, verse 13. What did the law and the prophets deliver to the men of their time? They gave a foretaste of that wisdom which was one day to be clearly manifested and showed it afar off. But where Christ can be pointed to with a finger, there the kingdom of God is manifested. In him are contained all the treasures of wisdom and understanding, and by these we penetrate almost to the very shrine of heaven. Section 6 there is nothing contrary to this in the fact that in the Christian church scarcely one is to be found who, in excellence of faith, can be compared to Abraham, and that the prophets were so distinguished by the power of the Spirit that even in the present day they give light to the whole world. For the question here is, not what grace the Lord conferred upon a few, but what was the ordinary method which he followed in teaching the people, and which even was employed in the case of those very prophets who were endued with special knowledge above others. For their preaching was both obscure as relating to distant objects, and was included in types. Moreover, however wonderful the knowledge displayed in them, as they were under the necessity of submitting to the tutelage common to all the people, they must also be ranked among children. Lastly, none of them ever had such a degree of discernment as not to savor somewhat of the obscurity of the age. 
whence the words of our Savior, quote, Many kings and prophets have desired to see the things which you see, and have not seen them, and to hear the things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear, unquote. Matthew 13, verse 17. And it was right that the presence of Christ should have this distinguishing feature, that by means of it the revelation of heavenly mysteries should be made more transparent. To the same effect is the passage which we formerly quoted from the first epistle of Peter, that to them it was revealed that their labor should be useful not so much to themselves as to our age. Section 7. I proceed to the third distinction, which is thus expressed by Jeremiah, quote, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Unquote. Jeremiah 31, verses 31-34. through 34. From these words the apostle took occasion to institute a comparison between the law and the gospel, calling the one a doctrine of the letter, the other a doctrine of the spirit, describing the one as formed on tables of stone, the other on tables of the heart, the one the preaching of death, the other of life, the one of condemnation, the other of justification, the one made void, the other permanent. Second Corinthians 3 verses 5 and 6 the object of the apostle being to explain the meaning of the prophet, the words of the one furnish us with the means of ascertaining what was understood by both. And yet there is some difference between them, for the apostle speaks of the law more disparagingly than the prophet. This he does not simply in respect of the law itself, but because there were some false zealots of the law who, by perverse zeal for ceremonies, obscured the clearness of the gospel, he treats of the nature of the law with reference to their error and foolish affection. It will, therefore, be proper to attend to this peculiarity in Paul. Both, however, as they are contrasting the Old and New Testament, consider nothing in the law but what is peculiar to it. For example, the law everywhere contains promises of mercy, but as these are adventitious to it, they do not enter into the account of the law as considered only in its own nature. All which is attributed to it is that it commands what is right, prohibits crimes, holds forth rewards to the cultivators of righteousness, and threatens transgressors with punishment, while at the same time it neither changes nor amends that depravity of heart which is naturally inherent in all. Section 8. Let us now explain the Apostles' contrast step by step. The Old Testament is literal, because promulgated without the efficacy of the Spirit. The New Spiritual, because the Lord has engraven it on the heart. The Second Antithesis is a kind of exposition of the First. The old is deadly, because it can do nothing but involve the whole human race in a curse. The new is the instrument of life, because those who are freed from the curse it restores to favor with God. The former is the ministry of condemnation, because it charges the whole sons of Adam with transgression. The latter the ministry of righteousness, because it unfolds the mercy of God, by which we are justified. The last antithesis must be referred to the ceremonial law. Being a shadow of things to come, it behoved in time to perish and vanish away. Whereas the gospel, inasmuch as it exhibits the very body, is firmly established forever. Jeremiah, indeed, calls the moral law also a weak and fragile covenant. 
but for another reason, namely because it was immediately broken by the sudden defection of an ungrateful people. But as the blame of such violation is in the people themselves, it is not properly alleged against the covenant. The ceremonies, again, inasmuch as through their very weakness they were dissolved by the advent of Christ, had the cause of weakness from within. Moreover, the difference between the Spirit and the letter must not be understood as if the Lord had delivered his law to the Jews without any good result, that is, as if none had been converted to him. It is used comparatively to commend the riches of the grace with which the same lawgiver, assuming as it were a new character, honored the preaching of the gospel. When we consider the multitude of those whom, by the preaching of the gospel, he has regenerated by his Spirit, and gathered out of all nations into the communion of his church, we may say that those of ancient Israel who, with sincere and heartfelt affection, embraced the covenant of the Lord, were few or none, though the number is great when they are considered in themselves without comparison. Section 9. Out of the third distinction, a fourth arises. In Scripture, the term bondage is applied to the Old Testament because it begets fear, and the term freedom to the New because production of confidence and security. Thus Paul says to the Romans, quote, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 15. To the same effect is the passage in the Hebrews, quote, for ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they had heard, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned, or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, unquote, etc. Hebrews 12, verses 18-22 What Paul briefly touches on in the passage which we have quoted from the Romans, he explains more fully in the epistle to the Galatians, where he makes an allegory of the two sons of Abraham in this way, quote, Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all." Unquote. Galatians 4, verses 25 and 26. As the offspring of Agar was born in slavery, and could never attain to the inheritance, while that of Sarah was free and entitled to the inheritance, so by the law we are subjected to slavery, and by the gospel alone regenerated into liberty. The sum of the matter comes to this. The Old Testament filled the conscience with fear and trembling. The New inspires it with gladness. By the former, the conscience is held in bondage. By the latter, it is manumitted and made free. If it be objected that the Holy Fathers among the Israelites, as they were endued with the same spirit of faith, must also have been partakers of the same liberty and joy, we answer that neither was derived from the law. But feeling that by the law they were oppressed like slaves, and vexed with a disquieted conscience, they fled for refuge to the gospel. And accordingly, the peculiar advantage of the gospel was that, contrary to the common rule of the Old Testament, it exempted those who were under it from those evils. Then again, we deny that they did possess the spirit of liberty and security in such a degree as not to experience some measure of fear and bondage. For, however, they might enjoy the privilege which they had obtained through the grace of the gospel. They were under the same bonds and burdens of observances as the rest of their nation. 
Therefore, seeing they were obliged to the ancient observance of ceremonies, which were the symbols of a tutelage bordering on slavery, and handwritings by which they acknowledged their guilt, but did not escape from it, they are justly said to have been, comparatively, under a covenant of fear and bondage in respect of that common dispensation under which the Jewish people were then placed. Section 10. The three last contrasts which we have adverted in section 4, 7, and 9 are between the law and the gospel, and hence in these the law is designated by the name of the Old, and the gospel by that of the New Testament. The first is of wider extent, section 1, comprehending under it the promises which were given even before the law. When Augustine maintained that these were not to be included under the name of the Old Testament, he took a most correct view, and meant nothing different from what we have now taught. For he had in view those passages of Jeremiah and Paul in which the Old Testament is distinguished from the word of grace and mercy. In the same passage, Augustine, with great shrewdness, remarks that from the beginning of the world, the sons of promise, the divinely regenerated, who through faith working by love obeyed the commandments, belonged to the New Testament, entertaining the hope not of carnal, earthly, temporal, but spiritual, heavenly, and eternal blessings, believing especially in a mediator, by whom they doubted not both that the Spirit was administered to them, enabling them to do good, and pardon imparted as often as they sinned. The thing which he thus intended to assert was that all the saints mentioned in Scripture from the beginning of the world as having been specially selected by God were equally with us partakers of the blessing of eternal salvation. The only difference between our division and that of Augustine is that ours, in accordance with the words of our Savior, quote, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, unquote, Matthew 11, verse 13, distinguishes between the gospel light and that more obscure dispensation of the word which preceded it, while the other division simply distinguishes between the weakness of the law and the strength of the gospel. And here also, with regard to the Holy Fathers, it is to be observed that though they lived under the Old Testament, they did not stop there, but always aspired to the New, and so entered into sure fellowship with it. Those who, contented with existing shadows, did not carry their thoughts to Christ, the Apostle charges with blindness and malediction. To say nothing of other matters, what greater blindness can be imagined than to hope for the expiation of sin from the sacrifice of a beast, or to seek mental purification in external washing with water, or to attempt to appease God with cold ceremonies, as if he were greatly delighted with them. Such are the absurdities into which those fall who cling to legal observances without respect to Christ. Section 11 the fifth distinction which we have to add consists in this, that until the advent of Christ, the Lord set apart one nation to which he confined the covenant of his grace. Moses says, quote, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Unquote. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. In another passage, he thus addresses the people, quote, Behold the heaven, and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had he delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Unquote. Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15. That people, therefore, as if they had been the only part of mankind belonging to him, he favored exclusively with the knowledge of his name, depositing his covenant, as it were, in their bosom, manifesting to them the presence of his divinity, and honoring them with all privileges. 
But to say nothing of other favors, the only one here considered is his binding them to him by the communion of his word, so that he was called and regarded as their God. Meanwhile, other nations, as if they had had no kind of intercourse with him, he allowed to wander in vanity, not even supplying them with the only means of preventing their destruction, viz. the preaching of his word. Israel was thus the Lord's favorite child. The others were aliens. Israel was known and admitted to trust and guardianship. The others left in darkness. Israel was made holy. The others were profaned. Israel was honored with the presence of God. The others kept far aloof from him. But on the fullness of the time destined to renew all things, when the mediator between God and man was manifested, the middle wall of partition, which had long kept the divine mercy within the confines of Israel, was broken down. Peace was preached to them who were afar off, as well as to those who were nigh, that being together reconciled to God, they might unite as one people. Wherefore, there is now no respect of Jew or Greek, of circumcision or uncircumcision, but Christ is all and in all. To him the heathen have been given for his inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. Psalm 2, verse 8. That he may rule without distinction, quote, from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth, unquote. Psalm 72, verse 8. Section 12. The calling of the Gentiles, therefore, is a distinguishing feature illustrative of the superiority of the New over the Old Testament. This, it is true, had been previously declared by the prophets, in passages both numerous and clear, but still the fulfillment of it was deferred to the reign of the Messiah. Even Christ did not acknowledge it at the very outset of his ministry, but delayed it until having completed the whole work of redemption in all its parts, and finished the period of his humiliation. He received from the Father, quote, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, unquote. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. Hence the period being not yet completed, he declared to the woman of Canaan, quote, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, unquote. Matthew 15, verse 24. Nor in his first commission to the apostles does he permit them to pass the same limits, quote, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, unquote. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. However plainly the thing may have been declared in numerous passages, when it was announced to the apostles it seemed to them so new and extraordinary that they were horrified at it as something monstrous. At length, when they did act upon it, it was timorously and not without reluctance. Nor is this strange, for it seemed by no means in accordance with reason that the Lord, who for so many ages had selected Israel from the rest of the nations, should suddenly, as it were, change his purpose and abandon his choice. Prophecy indeed had foretold it, but they could not be so attentive to prophecies as not to be somewhat startled by the novel spectacle thus presented to their eye. It was not enough that God had in old times given specimens of the future calling of the Gentiles. Those whom he had so called were very few in number, and moreover, he in a manner adopted them into the family of Abraham, before allowing them to approach his people. But by this public call the Gentiles were not only made equal to the Jews, but seemed to be substituted into their place as if the Jews had been dead. We may add that any strangers whom God had formerly admitted into the body of the church had never been put on the same footing with the Jews. Wherefore, it is not without cause that Paul describes it as, quote, the mystery which hath been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, unquote. Colossians 1, verse 26. Section 13. 
The whole difference between the Old and New Testaments has, I think, been fully and faithfully explained under these four or five heads, insofar as requisite for ordinary instruction. But since this variety in governing the church, this diversity in the mode of teaching, this great change in rites and ceremonies is regarded by some as an absurdity, we must reply to them before passing to other matters. And this can be done briefly, because the objections are not so strong as to require a very careful refutation. It is unreasonable, they say, to suppose that God, who is always consistent with himself, permitted such a change as afterwards to disapprove what he had once ordered and commended. I answer that God ought not to be deemed mutable, because he adapts different forms to different ages, as he knows to be expedient for each. If the husbandman prescribes one set of duties to his household in winter, and another in summer, we do not therefore charge him with fickleness, or think he deviates from the rules of good husbandry, which depends on the regular course of nature. In like manner, if a father of a family, in educating, governing, and managing his children, pursues one course in boyhood, another in adolescence, and another in manhood, we do not therefore say that he is fickle, or abandons his opinions. Why, then, do we charge God with inconstancy, when he makes fit and congruous arrangements for diversities of times? The latter similitude ought to be completely satisfactory. Paul likens the Jews to children, and Christians to grown men. Galatians 4, verse 1. What irregularity is there in the divine arrangement which confined them to the rudiments which were suitable to their age, and trains us by a firmer and more manly discipline? The constancy of God is conspicuous in this, that he delivered the same doctrine to all ages, and persists in requiring that worship of his name which he commanded at the beginning. His changing the external form and manner does not show that he is liable to change. Insofar, he has only accommodated himself to the mutable and diversified capacities of man. Section 14. But it is said, whence this diversity save that God chose to make it? Would it not have been as easy for him from the first, as after the advent of Christ, to reveal eternal life in clear terms without any figures, to instruct his people by a few clear sacraments, to bestow his Holy Spirit, and diffuse his grace over the whole globe? This is very much the same as to bring a charge against God, because he created the world at so late a period when he could have done it at the first, or because he appointed the alternative changes of summer and winter, of day and night. With a feeling common to every pious mind, let us not doubt that everything which God has done has been done wisely and justly, although we may be ignorant of the cause which required that it should be so done. We should arrogate too much to ourselves were we not to concede to God that he may have reasons for his counsel, which we are unable to discern. It is strange, they say, that he now repudiates and abominates the sacrifices of beasts, and the whole apparatus of that Levitical priesthood in which he formerly delighted, as if those external and transient matters could delight God or affect him in any way. It has already been observed that he appointed none of these things on his own account, but instituted them all for the salvation of men. If a physician, adopting the best method, effects a cure upon a youth, and afterwards, when the same individual has grown old and is again subject to the same disease, employs a different method of cure, can it be said that he repudiates the method which he formerly approved? Nay, continuing to approve of it, he only adapts himself to the different periods of life. In like manner, it was necessary in representing Christ in his absence, and predicting his future advent, to employ a different set of signs from those which are employed now that his actual manifestation is exhibited. It is true that since the advent of Christ, the calling of God is more widely addressed to all nations, 
and the graces of the Spirit more liberally bestowed than they had previously been. But who, I ask, can deny the right of God to have the free and uncontrolled disposal of his gifts, to select the nations which he may be pleased to illuminate, the places which he may be pleased to illustrate by the preaching of his word, and the mode and measure of progress and success which he may be pleased to give to his doctrine, to punish the world for its ingratitude by withdrawing the knowledge of his name for certain ages, and again, when he so pleases, to restore it in mercy." We see then that in the calumnies which the ungodly employ in this matter to perplex the minds of the simple, there is nothing that ought to throw doubt either on the justice of God or the veracity of Scripture. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as a complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton AB Canada T6L 3T5 if you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.